If you can um, catch hold of that reading, that'll be really helpful for you. Hopefully you got um, the A4 sheet as you came in and you'll be able to follow it along on there. If not, there's some Bibles, hopefully, in the pews in, in front of you, just in that sort of shelf. You can't always see them. These are the most sort of frustrating pews in the world because, you know, you think you can put a drink on them and not quite because of the angle. And you sort of try to see what's in the shelf underneath and you can't quite sort of uh, see them. Uh, last week, chapter 7, we saw that Moses would represent God before the man who thought that he was God, that is Pharaoh, so that Pharaoh would know that he was not God. Pharaoh didn't represent any God after all, but Moses, the shepherd exile, represented the living God. And this morning, we see Moses and Aaron back with Pharaoh, and we see some more plagues again. And the point that I want to draw to you, I don't know if it's the point in the story, I don't know if there's a the point in any of these interactions like this, there's probably several that you could bring out each, each time, but the one I want to bring out this time is this idea of the true God among counterfeits. I found here a, a slide here the other day of a shop, a genuine fake shop <laughs> and one of the perils of sort of foreign holidays is well maybe not perils because maybe you go looking for this but it's counterfeit goods isn't it now you know of course they're much much cheaper than the real McCoy but they have some problems don't they uh, they sort of try to be like all those big brands that you know and the goods that you know but they're not quite and they're not quite so good so I found some funny uh, examples here is the Sony Poly station that's a disappointing Christmas morning, unwrapping that instead of your PlayStation. Uh, nothing quite says reliability like Rolex time, does it? Uh, rip off of Rolex. Or how about these uh, special man? Uh, rip off of Superman. I'm not sure he sounds so much like a superhero anymore. There's nothing quite like uh, refreshing John's Daphne and Coke, is there? Rip off of Jack Daniels. Uh, lastly here, I think uh, I've got a Toy Story 3 one here. Space Boys 3. In fact, I'm somewhat jealous of Woody there. He looks like he's been working out. He's been hitting the juice. Arms are looking pretty good, albeit disproportionate. Uh, but don't let that stop you. Uh, and some lovely sliders, Enki. Uh, these encounters here pit Yahweh, the true God, with knockoff gods whom he knocks off pretty quickly. The series of encounters and plagues are a conflict between Yahweh and the gods of Egypt. And so here's the point that I hope you'll sort of see from this morning, is that Yahweh is the true God among the counterfeit gods of Egypt. And so I want to show you here three things through all of that big section of text. We won't look at every single verse in depth. A lot of it is somewhat repeated. And the point is so that it's a story so that you could retell it and retell it and you could memorize it. But I want to show you the fear of Pharaoh, the finger of God and the favor of God. We firstly see here the fear of Pharaoh, don't we? Former President Franklin Roosevelt once said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. A lot of people know the beginning of that quote, but he carries on. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror, which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. See, there's an unhealthy and an unnecessary fear. But there is also a healthy and a necessary fear, isn't there? There's a fear that you have to, frankly, put into children to not push each other down the stairs. 
to not touch the hob, to not walk out into roads without looking. There is a healthy and a necessary fear from unnecessary and unhealthy outcomes. But there's also an unnecessary and unhealthy fear, isn't there? And Pharaoh needs here to learn that good fear of Yahweh and not his gods because Yahweh is the true God among counterfeits. Look at verse 1 to 2 here. Let my people go, they say to Pharaoh, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, they told to him, to tell him, behold, I will plague or I will strike all your country with frogs. The second plague here, the first plague was turning the Nile into blood. The second plague is a little different to the first. I don't know if you noticed that there. This strike, this plague, depends on Pharaoh's actions. The first one didn't depend on what Pharaoh did. It was just simply done. He didn't have a choice. There was no let out of it. This time, Pharaoh has something of a choice. If you let my people go, this won't happen. If you keep hold of them, this is what will happen to you. Pharaoh's given a chance here, isn't he? There is an easy way to know and to acknowledge and to accept and to follow the word of the Lord. And there is a hard way. Will you, Pharaoh, choose the easy way or the hard way? And it's another attack upon his gods. There's a slide here, hopefully, of a god here called Heket. I think that's the right way to say it. I don't know. This is a sort of frog goddess. You see on the left-hand side what was a sort of common sort of frog idol that sort of represented the god. And then on the right-hand side here is a picture of, of the god on sort of one of the temples here. Uh, she's a goddess, sorry, who was a fertility uh, god who gave life to babies and was seen as the partner of a character called Kenum, who we thought about last week, who was uh, supposedly the one who controlled and powered the Nile. And so you see the sort of connection between the two, and here's the two plagues that have hit both of those things, both the Nile uh, and now the ground and the air and everything else as well. Two plagues and two, maybe even three gods that have been shown as completely powerless before Pharaoh and his court. And yet, unfortunately, we find verse 7, again, that the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. And we find again that the sorcerers have some sort of ability to repeat the plague, and yet they can't reverse it. They can't do the thing that would really be useful. They can do a bit of an imitation. We can get some frogs too, but they can't get rid of the frogs, which really would be the thing that would help, wouldn't it? But they have a power of sorts, don't they? And this seems to bother Pharaoh, because look at the next verse here, verse 8. Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs, and I'll let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Pharaoh, for the first time here, actually, has actually recognized God is in control and that he needs to do something to repair his relationship to God. There's something of a tension that's starting to build with his sorcerers. And Moses and Aaron, they must surely have hopes this would be the breakthrough here. They're beginning to actually get somewhere with him. They've moved from simply no to, well, if this, then you can go. Pharaoh is now looking to God, not the sorcerers of his gods, and is losing some faith in the ability of his sorcerers to save him and the people. There's a reality there, isn't there, that sometimes we need to reach a point of seeing that the thing that we trusted in so much doesn't work. 
in order to really find God. Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs. And so look at Moses' response, verse 9. Command me when I'm to plead for you, for your servants and for your people. And here's a step of faith from Moses, isn't it? Because think what Moses has been through. And this is a gracious response from Moses to be willing to pray for Pharaoh. We're not really primed for this being a possible outcome. And well, okay, if Pharaoh says this, Moses, then you do this. We were not really given that primer, were we, of what to do. We feel as though Moses is having to work out in the moment what he should do in response to this. And Moses has a choice. Just as Pharaoh had a choice, if you let my people go, fine. But if you don't, this is what will happen. Moses has a choice of what he'll do here. And to pray for his enemy is a step of faith, isn't it? But secondly, this is very clever on Moses' part, isn't it? Because this is a way of making sure that everybody, including Pharaoh, knows that God did it because it was done to order. Tell me when you want it to happen, so that then you'll know that exactly to order, God did it. So that you won't be able to turn around and say, well, perhaps it was one of your many other gods who did it. Perhaps one of them finally heard. No, no, you'll know Yahweh did it. And he did it exactly when you asked for it. And so he says, tomorrow. So Moses says, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. And there's Moses' thought process, isn't it? If God does this miracle to order in this way, it'll be clear that God has done this. It's not just a happy coincidence. It's not just that one of the many other gods has suddenly woken up, but Yahweh's done this for you. And so Moses cried to the Lord, verse 12 tells us here. Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh. Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And Moses shows he's good to his word. Because it might have been tempting, or maybe at least I'm telling you something about my psyche, I would have been tempted to maybe leave him to hang out to dry. And maybe not pray. And see what would just happen if you left it to God's hands. And, you know, you could wrap that up in some spiritual language, couldn't you? I was just leaving that all in God's hands. And you'd sound sort of very spiritual. But Moses is good to his word. He cries out for them. There's an element of empathy and compassion, isn't there? Even for the people who have oppressed him and his people. And then look at verse 13. The Lord did according to the word of Moses. That is a really significant little sentence. It it might not jump out immediately off the page, but that, that is a really significant sentence. The Lord did according to the word of Moses. We've heard throughout this story, and rightly so, that God gives his word to Moses and to Aaron, and we hear it said, and they did according to the word of the Lord. But here is the opposite way around. Moses has asked something of God, and God has given his request. There's a partnership here, that actually Moses can come and can ask of God something. And God said, okay, I'll do as you say. That's a really significant step. It shows us that Moses has enough cachet with God to make these kind of requests, as do we. And that's why we pray. 
God's sovereignty doesn't override human agency and responsibility. The fact that you actually make choices, you actually do things, you actually have responsibility for those. Pharaoh and Moses here make choices. The Lord did according to the word of Moses. And yet, look at verse 15 here, because this first section here ends on a sour note again, doesn't it? When Pharaoh saw there was respite, he hardened his heart. And that maybe tells us something about him, doesn't it? That he's sorry to a point for the results of what has happened. He's, he's sorry when he sees the swarm of frogs there. He's sorry that the circumstances are bad. But he's not sorry for what he's done. He's not come to that point yet. There's something changing within Pharaoh. There's at least something of a softening. But we're still a long way off from Pharaoh really repenting, aren't we? Pharaoh needs to fear Yahweh, the true God among counterfeits. And he starts to. But it doesn't seem to outlive the discomfort. Do you see what I mean? He only really has any level of fear of God when things are uncomfortable around him. <laughs> when he has the reason to have to look to God. There's a bit of a looking to him. The second things are comfortable. Not so much. He needs to fear Yahweh, the true God, among counterfeits. But secondly here, we see the finger of God. Um, one of the toughest sort of equations I found uh, in parenting is what do you do when things go quiet? Um, because you love the quiet, it's fantastic, you get so little of it, uh, you cherish it, um, but quiet is never good. Okay, because future you is going to have to deal with the collateral damage of what happens when it's quiet. Because that's usually when the worst incidents occur. So then you start to think to yourself internally, well, oh, do I just enjoy the quiet? Carpe diem. <laughs> just enjoy the moment, and I'll deal with the future later. Uh, and deal with that chaos. Or do I disrupt the quiet to go and just see what's happening? And, you know, sometimes the investigation as to what has happened is very difficult and, you know, getting the truth uh, really out of kids is, is challenging. Um, but other times it's easier than others. I have a slide here. This, uh, when Aaron was really young, he had a habit of incriminating himself uh, in his acts. Uh, and yet he still tried to claim he didn't know who this was, uh, who had done this. Here, God makes sure that Pharaoh and the sorcerers and the court and everybody else will know this has been his handiwork, that Yahweh is the true God among counterfeits. He commands Moses and Aaron again, verse 16, strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats. And again, now we're back to a strike, a plague with no chance to avoid it. There's no element of choice for Pharaoh here with this one. We move as well from the Nile, from the water scene to the land. And it marks the transition from water to land in those curses. God is actually going to curse and strike and affect every single thing for them in their life. But he started with the water. He's now moving to the land. And verse 17, there were gnats. Or perhaps it could be lice on man and beast. And all the dust of the earth became gnats. As well as being incredibly uncomfortable, these insects may well have been disease-bearing creatures. And the text here connects the gnats to the soil, doesn't it? Strike the soil and they will become gnats. Just as 
the frogs were connected to the water. Sorry, my brain's not quite awake. I couldn't understand my writing. Um, Egypt had benefited from great soil due to the Nile each year in the autumn flooding. Uh, and then as gradually the waters would come back, it would leave these lovely sort of mineral deposits and, and fertilizer on the soil. So even to today, there's great crops that can be grown there. And I, th I was watching a video last night, so I think 95% of all the population and settlings within Egypt are essentially around the Nile banks still because that is the best place in which to live. It's uh, plenty of, of good soil to grow crops and to have your houses. And in both cases here, something they loved and relied on became a source of great discomfort. Egypt had all these gods that were connected to these things. They had gods like Kepri and Ged, hopefully there's a picture of them sort of here, who protected the soil and were said to give it its life. There's Kepri there on the left with this sort of dung beetle kind of thing as a head. I mean, that's an unfortunate situation, isn't it? I mean, you know, when these pictures are getting sort of done up and dished out, you end up with dung beetle for a head. Uh, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I, yeah, yeah. can I not have the dung beetle body and a human head? It's unfortunate, isn't it? And then the guy with a goose on the top of his head, Jeb, it looks more like a seagull. Looks like the sort of patron god of Greg's uh, in the city center. Uh, there you go. How they worked out how to distribute these, I don't know. I'm sure there was a method to it all. But there were all these gods connected with all these things said to protect and provide and keep these things. And it turns out the gods they thought that they had for these things were powerless before Yahweh. This is a way of God saying that you, you know that benefit that you have. It always came from me. And I can take it away just like that. And the magicians tried by their secret arts, verse 18 tells us, to produce gnats, but they could not. And now for the first time we see the sorcerer is simply unable to even imitate the work of God through Moses and Aaron. This is a huge, huge moment because we see that the power of Yahweh is so much greater than the power of the magicians. And that's important because all along the aim of these strikes has been that Pharaoh would know that he is God. And then look at the magician's response, verse 19. The magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. That is an amazing confession of God's power. Now, it is also an amazing opt-out excuse, isn't it? That, oh yes, well, you know, before, it was just a case of Moses and Aaron with their sticks and us with our sticks. And we could do the same because we were just fighting Moses and Aaron. Uh, you know, but now you're pitting us up against the God. Uh, we can't be expected to compete with a God. You know, come on. It's an amazing confession, though, isn't it? This is the finger of God. It's not amazing because it's new information. It's stating the obvious, surely. But it's an amazing confession of weakness. We can't compete with this. It seems to suggest that whatever was happening previously, they didn't think that was God, but Moses and Aaron. But this is now a step above and a step beyond, and we can't compete with an actual God. And yet, look at Pharaoh's response in verse 19 again. 
close this section here. Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Whilst his magician priests recognize the work of God, Pharaoh will not give in to God's work. Why? Because the problem of unbelief is not about the lack of information, but a refusal to accept. Yahweh is the true God among counterfeits, so that the sorcerers know only God could do this. We've seen Pharaoh's fear of God, we've seen the finger of God, and then lastly we see the favour of God here. Egyptian religion revolved around maintaining mat. That is a sense of order, harmony, righteousness. I suppose a similar kind of comparable thing might be shalom, sort of peace, harmony, rhythm, this sort of sense in which the universe is in sync when God first creates it. Everything in the sort of Egyptian world contributed towards mat or against it. Uh, there's a slide here again as well. Sometimes for the sake of memory and uh, conceptualizing it, it would be pictured in the form of a goddess called Mart. You see her there on the right-hand side with the feather of righteousness, the feather of truth. Uh, and then if you've got very sort of good eyesight, um, you'll see on the left-hand side the picture of the weighing of the heart. We've had that in previous weeks. This is the idea of the sort of uh, potential entrance into the afterlife. Your heart would be weighed. It would be weighed against Mart's feather, that feather of righteousness and truth. It's a really significant idea for them. I guess in contemporary terms, think of some people's idea of karma, that everything is either good or negative karma, and it's about sort of trying to keep that in the right balance. The whole idea is to do things to gain the favor of the gods. But Yahweh, the true God among counterfeits, is the only one who can grant favor. And he grants favor to the people whom he chooses. And he curses those who curse his people. Look at verse 20. Rise up early in the morning. They're commanded and present yourself to Pharaoh. And they're commanded to present themselves as he goes out to the water. After the gnats happening without warning, uh, without warning sorry, Moses is sent to Pharaoh again during his ritual bath. And she said to us, let my people go that they may serve me, or else, and again, now Pharaoh has a choice this time, he has the potential to see this uh, curse off by doing the right thing, or else I will send swarms of flies on you. Any consequences here are Pharaoh again choosing the hard way, not the easy way. We've seen God affect the water, with the Nile and the frogs, we've seen him affect the land with the gnats, and now he affects the air with flies. But why does God send a plague of flies next? It's an interesting thought, isn't it? The word here actually isn't clear. The word basically is, is a sound. It, it, it's, it, it means sort of swarm, sort of sound, or a sound descriptor, I suppose, isn't it? It means swarm. So actually it could be any sort of flying insect, really, but not probably sort of housefly like we know. And in fact, again, there was a goddess called Wajet uh, who was seen as the protector of Egypt and of the pharaohs. And sometimes she would be uh, pictured as, I'm definitely not going to be able to say this word, um, 
an ichnu monidae. I've written it down. That. Uh, it's, it's a kind of fly species. Um, a sort of cross between a fly, mosquito, wasp. Um, so not quite house fly. Definitely more irritating. Potentially blood-sucking. And in this case, God is showing he's overthrown any protector. And yet he protects his people. I will set apart the land of Goshen. God says, and there's a map for you here so you can get an idea of roughly where that is. Uh, you see the sort of top left corner there. Underneath it, it says uh, Ramesses. That was one of the cities they were uh, forced to build in the years of slavery and oppression. I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell. There's a new development. It tells us that actually all the other plagues seem to potentially have actually affected everybody. So maybe some of the impetus for Moses praying that previous uh, plagues would go is partly that they were also affecting Israel too, who were living in amongst the people there. But now there is a distinction. Only the Egyptians will be affected by this plague. The enemies cursed and people blessed. And let me just take you back just quickly to that promise in Genesis 12 that we said we keep coming back to that God is fulfilling here. Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3. I will make of you a great nation, and I'll bless you, and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God is being true to the promise that he's given his people. I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell, that you may know, look at verse 22, that I'm the Lord in the midst of the earth. Or in fact, it might be easier translated, that you may know that I, the Lord, am in the land. He wants Egypt to know, and Israel too, I'm in control, even in Egypt. I am not absent in this land in which you say there are all these other counterfeit gods. Uh-uh. I'm God. I've never not been here even when Pharaoh has been ruling oppressively and evilly, God is not out of control. One bit afflicted by the plague, one avoiding it. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. Or it might be better translated, actually. Thus, I will put redemption between my people and your people. God would make it clear that he rescues his people in a way that he does not rescue those who are against him. And so now Pharaoh responds, go. Sacrifice to your God within the land. And now it's not just no, but it is haggling, isn't it? There's a story of Winston Churchill at a function turning to beautiful woman and asking something along the lines of would you come home with me for a million pounds so she says well yes i suppose so and so then he asks, well how about for 10 pounds so she says no who do you think i am his withering response is we've already established that now we're just haggling over the price and it's, it's not very politically correct but the point i want to take from it is this if you're willing to give up principles for any price, 
your principles are worth nothing. That's the more serious point of the, of the joke, isn't it? They can't be moderately valuable. Well, they're valuable up to a point of six figures. No, no, they're either valuable or they're not. They're worthless. Pharaoh is simply haggling now. His principles are gone. And there's a reality for us too. C.S. Lewis says, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Here, we establish what's going to happen, that Pharaoh will let these people go. It's simply haggling. It's simply a case of what the price is going to be before he gives in. Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But look at Moses' response, and look at him growing in confidence here. It wouldn't be right, he says, to do so. For the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? What does he mean? It's not that they're going to do something scandalous. They're really not. But Pharaoh doesn't correct him that it's something that's scandalous to the Egyptians as far as they're concerned. Again, bring you back to that idea right at the beginning of the section here of Mark, of that order, that harmony amongst the gods. All sacrifices that Egyptians made were in order to try and maintain that balance, much like karma sort of works for some people today. And so perhaps what Moses is saying here is, look, if we go and we make these sacrifices to Yahweh, a God that you don't recognize here, you will accuse us of breaking Mark. You will say that it's our fault when things go wrong. And you will turn on us vindictively. So no, we need to go out of the land to offer our worship to God. So Pharaoh said, verse 28, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. He hopes there's a sort of easy way out here. You can go a little bit, but I have every intention to pull you back in. You're not getting out of here this way. And yet, he knows he needs their help. Plead for me, he says. And look at Moses, verse 29. Behold, I'm going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only, let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. And Moses is growing in stature here. Have you noticed that? Moses is the one doing the speaking. Just a few chapters ago, in chapter 4, Moses had complained that he had no voice. I'm slow of speech, I'm slow of thought. When all these things happen, I'm not going to be able to respond on the spot and to know what to say and how to haggle and how to negotiate. Looks like he's doing pretty well, doesn't it? <laughs> Aaron had been given to be the mouthpiece, but Moses is doing the speaking after all. He always could have done it from the beginning. <laughs> but here he suddenly finds his voice, doesn't he? And he's going off script here. And yet God is good to his word. He said to Moses from the off, trust me, I will give you the voice. Because trust trumps talent. God often throws us out of our comfort zone, but he said he would give a voice. And he's been good to his word, isn't he? 
At first, Pharaoh started the negotiating off with Moses, but now it's Moses negotiating with Pharaoh. And notice what he says. Only don't let Pharaoh cheat again. In fact, actually, the word could be, don't be deceitful. Don't be two-faced again. You've said this in the past. You said you were going to let us go, and you've turned away. Don't be deceitful. That's an important word as well, because again, think of that concept of Mark, that feather of truth, of righteousness. To be deceitful is in opposition to that. (laughs) By the very thing that you say will make you right, you've not been living to it, Pharaoh. You've been deceitful. You've cheated. Don't cheat again. And look at verse 31 there. The Lord did as Moses asked. Again, God is willing to do as Moses has prayed for. No other God operates like Yahweh does. For all the power that he has, he responds to his people. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time. And notice that two of the three times it speaks of Pharaoh's heart being hard, Pharaoh is hardening it here. God is hardening Pharaoh's heart, but Pharaoh is hardening his own heart. Pharaoh is to see that Yahweh is the true God among counterfeits because Yahweh gives his favor to his people and he opposes those who oppose him. We see Pharaoh's fear of God, we see the finger of God and that favor of God there. But the one point I want you to take away is that Yahweh is the true God among counterfeits. He's the true God among counterfeits, but Pharaoh in Egypt had trusted in this pantheon of gods to protect and provide and give meaning to them. Gods who they thought assured them of fruitful crops, of plenty of children and material wealth. And in an instant, Yahweh reveals that he is the one who controls those things and he is the one who gives them and he is the one who takes them away. And I wonder what we today might be tempted to fear losing and tempted to look to for some sort of meaning, whether it may be career progression or financial security or approval or appearance, I don't know. Maybe endless things, mightn't it? Things that we look to to give us that sense of worth and identity outside of God himself. When the only one to truly fear, to truly look to and keep hold of is God himself. Yahweh is the true God among counterfeits, but Pharaoh and Egypt placed their confidence in the magician priests and the gods that they stood for. This is where they believe power was. But here we see none of those have any power before Yahweh. Yahweh enables a wandering shepherd with a stick to overpower these mighty gods of Egypt who would help them build their empire, or so they thought. And I wonder where we may be tempted to give power in our lives to other people, to acclaim, to government, to endless things perhaps, that we feel seem to have that all-encompassing power when the only one with any real power is God alone. Yahweh is the true God among counterfeits, but Pharaoh and the Egyptians believed that if they worked desperately to maintain a balance of mat, you might please the gods. 
that if you managed to do this, then you might just pass that weighing of the heart ceremony. But nobody will ever actually be good enough to earn it. And Moses has numerous times exposed that for Pharaoh here, of his heart being hardened, of him being deceitful already. And since these gods have no power to grant favor, you then have no hope of salvation. If you can't possibly meet the test and you have no hope of anyone granting it to you, what can you possibly do? Can't be saved from our, by our works, sorry, because we need saving from our works. It is the things that we do that condemn us. There's no hope to be saved by them. But Yahweh, since he is true God among counterfeits, can offer favor. If you believe that the only one to fear is God and the only one with power is God, then this, his verdict is then final. And so listen to what he says later on, Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Paul puts it in a similar way as he opens his letter to the Romans. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed or is gifted from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Yahweh is the true God among counterfeits. The true God able and willing to save us by changing our heart, by granting us a new heart by cleansing us in him. Yahweh is the true God among counterfeits. And Jesus, his son, his heir of all things, is the one through whom we can have hope of salvation, protection, provision, deliverance, and security in amongst the world. Let's pray and then we'll close by seeing another song of worship together.